trauma and mental illness seem inexorably linked, with racism and homelessness contributing to severity and complexity. How do we know? Does evidence exist? Do we even need proof? Isn't it obvious? I think I need to speak with a social worker researcher. Fortunately, I met Whitney Irie, Ph.D. MSW, Assistant Professor at Boston College School of Social Work, who introduced me to Robert Motley, Ph.D. MSW, also at Boston College. Robert examines the intersection of racism, violence, and trauma for emerging black adult men and women ages 18 to 29 and associated mental and behavioral outcomes. Eureka! We have a match. Welcome to Health Hats, the podcast. I'm Danny Van Lillen, a two-legged, cisgender, old white man of privilege who knows a little bit about a lot of health care and a lot about very little. You will listen and learn about what it takes to adjust to life's realities in the awesome surface of health care. Let's make some sense of all of this. Like what you're reading? hearing, or watching, go to my webpage, health-hats.com support to choose a method of support that suits you. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate this. I'm looking forward to our conversation. When did you first realize that health was fragile? I would have to say probably during my doctoral studies. My research really focused on exposure to community violence among Black emerging adults. And it really came to my attention when I had conducted a systematic literature review looking at trauma, what was the prevalence rates of trauma among Black males, and also what were some of the barriers or facilitators to them using mental health service use. And what we found after looking at all the literature that had been conducted, looking at trauma exposure for Black men, was that they had high levels of exposure to traumatic events. 50 to 60% had experienced trauma, some of them seven, eight times during their lifetime. But also, they all had high rates of mental health illnesses, such as anxiety, generalized anxiety, psychotic disorders, and things like that. But what was the most important finding was that roughly about, I would say, 56 to 74% of the black males across these studies that we looked at, they may have had an unmet need for mental health services. So you're talking about a large population of black men who are walking around what I like to call ticking time bombs because they are experiencing a lot of trauma. We know the adverse effects that trauma can have on one's mental health, but when you're not receiving services, it could actually intensify a lot of the symptoms that they're already exhibiting or experiencing. So that was really, that was between 2015 and 16 is when that really came to light for me. Yeah. Wow. This is a, like a minor point, but I want to ask it because when I spoke to you earlier, it was the first time I heard the phrase emerging adults. 
And I love it. I just love it so much that I had been calling this series Young Adults, but Emerging just feels so much more powerful. How did this term evolve? I didn't know about this term until 2015 myself. I was at a conference and there was a workshop called Emerging on Emerging Adulthood. And I was like, what is emerging adulthood? I never heard of that as well, too. It's a term in a life stage that's been coined by Dr. Jeffrey Arnett. What makes it a distinct life stage between young adulthood is that it, because of the advances that have been made in technology, a lot of people, just in our society as a whole, a lot more people now are prolonging going into adulthood. Now they're getting their higher education. So they're taking a little bit more longer time before they really truly take on the responsibilities of adulthood, meaning that you're married, you have children, you're pretty much have entered into your career. You're no longer depending on your parents for any type of financial support. And so because people are staying in school a lot longer, they're still in this transitional period to where they're really still trying to figure out what they want to be in life, what type of career they want to have. They're still exploring love possibilities and things like that. And so that period between 18 to 29 is what Jeffrey Arnett coins as emerging adulthood. Some of them focus more mm-hmm. on 18 to 25, but it, it does extend up into 29. Mm-hmm. Um, and so these are just individuals who are still in that transitional phase where they are maybe still don't have the financial stability that they would like to have. Haven't really got into their career, mm-hmm. furthering their education, haven't gotten married and settled down, having children and things like that. And so okay. that's pretty much a summary of what emerging adulthood is. Okay. Thank you. So, so emerging adults that experience severe mental illness plus racism, homophobia, sexism, it seems that they have an even more diminished chance of finding treatment and support while the likelihood, this is so complex, my question, we'll break it down or you'll break it down for me in a minute. But they have a diminished chance of finding treatment. But the likelihood of community violence and incarceration is also increasing. And it just seems like there are so many forces here. Like, how can that be broken? It's freaks me out how oh my god it's not just starting it's not just starting on a back foot it's starting like with your butt in the air i mean it's yeah (laughs) it just keeps going it just keeps going and it seems like how do you stop the ferris wheel from continuing (laughs) yes yes Uh, it just keeps going how do people get off so that they can get the help that they need yeah and so for emerging adulthood it's you have to be so there's a lot that can be done but i don't want to talk in terms of emerging adults as a whole group we have to be specific with the population that we're talking about and also with the problem okay Um, so given that i research black emerging adults i will speak to that population okay uh, do you just speak to black males or also black females 
black females as well. Okay. Uh, so most of my work has, yeah, most of my, most of the work that I'm doing now encompasses both black males and black emerging adult females. As well. Okay. Thank you. And so when we think about how do we break this cycle, well, there's a couple of ways from some of the research I've been doing, what we have found is that support. So having some type of support system that you can lean on is very important because without any support, then you're stuck to deal with these things on your own. And when you're experiencing these symptoms, a lot of times it's just hard to try to manage it on your own. So having a, a support system is important. We also found that for people who are living with mental illnesses, having some type of transportation services to be able to take them from where they are to the needed care, uh, wherever that facility may be, that is a big thing that have come out in the research, particularly in focus groups with emerging adults who have been suffering from mental illness. But also, and I used to intern at one of these drop-in centers. And so I interned at a drop-in center at a facility that serviced individuals who were living with a severe mental illness. And it really was almost like their home away from home. This is a place where they can come, be around people who are similar to them, who they get along with. But they had clinicians on staff that could work with them. They had game rooms. They had different groups about how to better live, how to navigate the hospital systems. How do you get connected with mental health providers? And so they had so much support at these drop-in centers. And so I feel that having more of these drop-in centers in areas where there are high rates of mental illnesses will be another way that we can break this cycle because they need help. You know, and so... Another thing I would like to say is that we need relentless and sustained engagement with this population to really be able to facilitate better access to needed services. So it can't be a one-off. We have to have services in place that are going to be sustained and long-term that can be in place to be able to assist these individuals with getting to the different services that they need. Because for a lot of them, again, transportation, they don't have any money. They may be secluded. They don't have a lot of friends. So what is it that we can put in place so we can have individuals who can go out into the communities and be able to assist them with taking them to to a clinician or to a mental health facility where they can get the proper services that they need? But then also, I don't want to say more importantly, but just the last thing is that they need more opportunities that can allow these individuals to have upward social mobility. And so what do I mean by Upward social mobility, there's three key factors that I always identify as education, employment, and income. Do they have the opportunities to advance their education, to get skills that needed, to get a good job, to have livable, to earn livable wages? And so when you have individuals who do not have any type of, of upward social mobility, a lot of times they're stuck in areas where there's low income, poverty, crime, and all these things. And so they're more susceptible to continue the cycle, being exposed to violence, not knowing where to get the services, not having any support. And it has to be a relentless and uh, a, a tailored intervention approach for this population if we really want to truly break the cycle for, for, for them. Now a word about our sponsor, A Bridge. Record your healthcare conversations with doctors and other clinicians with a bridge. Push the big pink button and record. Read the transcripts or listen to clips when you get home. Check out the app 
at abridge.com, A-B-R-I-D-G-E.com, or download it on the Apple App Store or Google Play Store. Let me know how it went. I need help. I've expanded my podcast this year to include video, and costs have surged to 15 grand annually, while each episode takes 30 to 40 hours to produce. With growing content and shrinking bandwidth, I need support to keep creating without impacting our retirement funds. As I look towards the next five to 10 years, I'm building a production team of emerging adults to carry this project forward. This succession planning requires resources. But here's the deal. You can help. Visit health-hats.com slash support for ways to contribute. Best option? Patreon offers a monthly subscription with bonus content, Zoom meetings with me and fellow contributors, personal Barry Sachs MP3s, coaching sessions, and more. Occasional donations are welcome, and you can still subscribe for free to enjoy bonus episodes. You can also recommend us through email, social media, or postcards postage on us. Visit health-hats.com slash support. Your support is deeply appreciated. Thank you. Wow. You're a researcher. And how is it that you identify the research questions that you invest your time and energy to? So now you're a more of a mature, you're not a newbie researcher anymore. You're more of a mature researcher. How do you think that you're asking the right questions? Yeah. Great question. And so as a researcher, what and I always train individuals who are in my lab to do, and it's what I was trained to do as well, too. The great thing about my job is that you get to pick a, a research or area or research topic that is most important to you. So being a Black man, growing up on the west side of Chicago, knowing the things that I've experienced, community violence was something that was that I was interested in. And I wanted to do it for Black populations, Black emerging adults. And so as a researcher, when you're starting off, you have to first find out what has already been done. And so the big task is to do a scoping review of all of the different types of research. And I would go back 20 years to Mm -hmm. say what researchers have been doing things on topics around community violence exposure for Black emerging adults, looking at mental health outcomes, behavioral health outcomes, and things like that. I wanted to know what has been done what has been tried, what research questions have been proposed. And that way, it would I would be able to identify what hasn't been asked based off of the research that has okay. been done. And so for any researcher out there who is looking at a, a topic, you want to first find out what has already been done around this topic because we're trying to identify gaps in research that we can then fill. And also these gaps should have implications for future research questions, for future mm-hmm. practice, and also for future policy uh, implications as well. And so that was the that's the way that I come up with my questions regarding 
my research projects. Okay. And then now that you are more mature at this and you have a lab, if you're anything like me, you're at risk for being at full yourself. And full of you know, yourself? Full of yourself, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. You, How many you, know, you think and yeah. so how do you like oh let me just give you an example. So recently I had as a guest a, a young lady who was in her mid-20s who's very much working with young adults with with complex and rare um, medical conditions. And she's very worried about being out of touch of, with 13-year-olds at 25. And I just loved it about her. That was her concern. It seems like when it comes to racism and community and violence, not that this is my field of expertise, but it seems like there are certain core things that you probably don't need to do research to know that they're there. Yes. But then there's stuff that every era has something new, a new twist. So whether it's social media was not a... When I was young... Young, meaning Just 20 you know, years ago, even you 10 years yeah. ago, it wasn't as yes. big as it is. But so how do you make sure that you're staying in touch with the new stresses that are contributing to community violence? No, great question. And what I always tell people, they're like, what do you get paid to do? What we get paid as a research, we get paid to think, to read to write and talk. Okay. <laughs> that's the big things that we get paid to do. And once you stop doing those things, then yeah. you no longer will have a job. And so right. the only way that I could keep abreast of the changes that are happening within society and for the populations that I'm most interested in is that I have to stay on top of the research that's being published. I have to stay engaged and not only in the work but then also in how am I conceptualizing the problems that is happening for this population? Back in 2014, when police violence really started kicking up after the killing of Michael Brown in St. Louis, which I was living there, then you know you see a lot of researchers now going into investigating police violence and its impact on black populations. When Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson, Missouri, that's when you started to see the the influx of research papers and things like that and, and other op-eds talking about police violence and its prevalence mm -hmm. rates and things like that. And since then, you've had a plethora of papers come out. Right. Uh, but one of the things that I looked at was that being exposed to police violence is just one thing. All of us, no matter what color you are, you can be exposed to police saying something derogatory towards you, grabbing you when you felt like they shouldn't have grabbed you and things like that. But I was most interested in how do we examine the frequency of people who are exposed to police violence that they perceive that the actions of the police is because of the color of their skin. Okay. And that's what I call perceived racism-based police violence. Mm -hmm. How do we measure it to be able to capture those experiences? Mm -hmm. And when I looked at all of the measures on racism and things like that, there was not a measure 
an existing measure that would allow me to be able to capture the frequency of their exposures, not just as a witness, but also when you see videos in the media that you perceived as being racism-based police violence. And so I had to develop a measure for mm. that, which I did. And so that was me adding value mm-hmm. to science by creating a measure now that other researchers can use to be able to assess the frequency of exposure to perceived racism-based police violence. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's one of the things that when you're keeping up with what's going on and we're thinking about uh, our population and where's the gap, where's people are not thinking about. That was one of the ways that I was able to come up with a new area mm-hmm. of research that was not just looking at community violence exposure, but a specific type of, of community-based violence exposure. That's interesting. Like in my career in nursing and then in administration, quality management, information technology, it, I thought of myself, I think of myself as a vacuum filler, which is a similar thing. Where are the gaps and fill them? I find that to be very fascinating because why is something a gap? Why is there a gap in care? Why is there a gap in understanding? Why is there a gap in measurement? Why is there a gap in action? And it seems like those are... um, the places where there's plenty of expertise around them, but it's not being applied. And then to be able to build a bridge or a method or a threshold, I find that to be really exciting work. Okay, but wait a minute. But another part of it is that that one of the ways of finding gaps is there are the gaps that you don't see yourself. When we had our brief introductory call, one of the things we talked about was how we include emerging adults with lived experience in your research design, your analysis, your dissemination. And can you talk a little bit about that? And how does that help you feel real and up-to-date and genuine and on track or whatever? I don't know the right words. No, I got you. For me, I I love to conduct mixed methods research. Okay. Uh, So where you're collecting both qualitative data and quantitative data. Qualitative data really lets you... In terms of when I talk about qualitative data, what I'm saying is uh, focus groups or individual interviews with Black emerging adults. And so that gives me to really go in depth about their own personal lived experiences uh, mm-hmm. and to get their expertise and their perspective on a deeper level of what's happening to them. How are they perceiving what's going on with them? What do they feel they need in order to overcome some of the obstacles that they're facing? Mm-hmm. And so that's where you get that in, that real rich data to have a, a much more thorough understanding of, of what is going on with the population. But then also, how do I get them engaged in my... So that's one way. Mm-hmm. Uh, another way as a project that I'm working on now where I created a community advisory board 
which is a community advisory board of emerging adults. And so right now I have a grant from Robert Woods Johnson Foundation where I'm looking to now validate the measure that I developed for my dissertation, but now with a national sample of Black emerging adults and also Latinx emerging adults or Hispanic. There are different terms, but we use Latinx. And so the community advisory board consists of both Black and Latinx emerging adults speaking English and Spanish, and they are involved in helping me to create and adapt survey items that can specifically capture their experiences. And so mm -hmm. these are people from the population that I have involved in helping mm -hmm. to think through and come up with the best survey items. And then I will then conduct some individual interviews with both Black and Latinx emerging adults to also share with them the items to get their feedback on the mm -hmm. items based off of their lived experiences before I then pilot it to a much more larger sample. Mm -hmm. And so having community advisory boards, expert content panels, those are ways that you can get uh, people from the population engaged in the development and the beginnings of the research before you actually implement it with a much more larger sample. Mm -hmm. So it's just, it's more rigorous. It, it, I love that process because they can really give you some of their lived experience and look at some of the, your thoughts and say, no, this is something that, that you're missing where you're not mm -hmm. capturing for this population. And so it just strengthens the research. And do you, do you ever seek their assistance to analyze the results? Like yeah. analyze the results of the studies? Yes, what I'm doing right now, once they help me to come up with the items, we now go and we do our individual interviews. Once we come back with that data, they help to look at, okay, what was some of the, the, the things that the respondents said that they didn't understand about the questions? So collect, okay. yeah, collectively as a group, yeah. we say, okay, what do we need to take from these responses to be able to modify these survey yeah. items a little bit more, refine them, tune them, so that now we're all pleased with the final set of items yes. that we have. Okay, okay, that's great. That's one way, that's one way. Okay, well, that that's rich. So research without implementation seems to me to be ink on paper. The challenge is that you do good work and you identify something that if it was generalized in more communities might help either reduce community violence or increase the proportion of emerging adults with serious mental illness who are having meaningful lives. But I don't know. It seems, I mean, it seems like just because something in this world, and probably in all worlds, just because something is evidence-based doesn't mean anybody is going to adopt it. And so how do you think about, how do you think about that, about how your, your, what you learn gets spread into the diaspora of all these different emerging Entities. black ad, ad, emerging adults communities beyond 
Boston or beyond Missouri or the west side of Chicago. Yeah. How do you think about that? It's a tall task. And as researchers, we're always trying to conduct research that that has implications for practice and trying to embed these things within organizations. And so for me, what I always look to do is partner with existing community-based organizations, particularly those who provide some type of prevention or intervention around mental health services. Um, and so it's good to build those relationships with them because now when you come up with a research idea, for me, I want to be able to use my findings to have an immediate impact for mm-hmm. the population. Yeah. And so one example is what I'm doing now with my project. I have um, I have an organization here in in Cambridge, Massachusetts called Strategies for Youth. Lisa Thoreau, she's the executive director. I met her when I first got to Boston. They do a lot of trainings with law enforcement officials across the country, uh, really on, on trying to train them on techniques and things to have better engagement with younger uh, Black populations. And, but they hadn't done anything really around emerging adults. And so when I was speaking with them, I told them I was going to be applying for this grant. And so what they're going to do now, I was able to get them, they're committed to saying, okay, Robert, you conduct your research. When you come back with the findings, we're going to take your, we're going to work with you or with your findings to be able to modify our existing training that we do with law enforcement. So now it can be inclusive of the experiences of Black emerging adults so that now police officers can be trained on how do you engage properly with this population so that we have less negative interactions with police and Black emerging adults. And so that's one win. And so once you do that, now you have to evaluate whether or not it has this intended impact. And once you do a rigorous evaluation, you see it has this impact. Now, how do we scale up to take it national? So it's a, it's a lot of steps with, to get across the country. But when you do it right at the beginning and you build the foundation, then it, it should be an easier sale because, like you say, I believe that all organizations should be using interventions or preventions that have that are evidence based. Uh, but also, how do you make them aware of these evidence based practices? And so, I try to work with organizations because a lot of them have ties to other organizations across the country mm-hmm. and things like that. I'm also working with Dr. Craig Burns, who's the director of the University Counseling Services at Boston College. So once I develop this measure for this large national sample, we're going to have an event where we're going to invite all mental health professionals who are working in college, university, or community-based organizations who provide mental health services. We're going to have an event to talk with them about this scale with the hopes of them including it when they're assessing trauma for Black and Latinx emerging adults. So we're trying to institutionalize this measure and embed, embed them in these organizations. And so strategically, that's how I try to work with organizations to not just do the work research, but how am I implementing it into practice? So I love it. I love it. So I'm on the, I'm on the board of governors of PCORI. And one of the things that I say the same thing, I'm a heavy advocate of that community-based research is funded and that research is designed for increasing likelihood of uptake. And the challenge is I've been 
started as a I, I I had ideals and energy and didn't know that much. Realizing and learning how difficult it is to apply for research funding. It's a skill and you need experience at that. And that community organizations, it's not what they do. And it isn't, it's not how they should spend their money. That's your job. You're the researcher. You're the one who needs to be expert at where's the money and how do you get it and how do you design the study. And I try to encourage community organizations to partner with researchers and then to invest in those partnerships because that's how the benefit of what they've learned by working with the populations they love and support and they'll get information then that they can leverage to do their work better is through partnerships. So I, I love hearing it from your side of it. It's great. All right. What haven't we talked about that we ought to? Hmm. There's a lot to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, a, and we're both good talk. talkers. That's our both yes. of our businesses talking. That's right. <laughs> no, but I think the last the social media we didn't really talk. Oh about yeah, social, yeah, social media, social right? Media and how uh, because, like you were mentioning earlier, that social media is such a it's a new phenomenon. A lot of what we're trying to do now is really to tease out the effect that social media can have, particularly for uh, around violence and how it can exposure to violence via social media, how it can impact the mental health of black emerging mm-hmm. adults. And so we do have some a couple of pieces that have been published, but some that are forthcoming that has been looking at the the amount of exposure to police violence videos or to police violence that you perceived as being racism based and how it's been found to be associated with substance use, but also suicidality among black emerging adults and now what do we do about that because there is a negative impact from using social media but then there can also be a positive impact as well because social media now has opened up a variety of pathways and so let's just take for example like a person who may be suffering from mental illness and they they're in their community don't really have a support system but If they have access to social media, they have access to friends and family members, not only just in their locale, but across the country who they now can connect with. They have uh, opportunities to connect with support groups online with people who have similar lived experiences as them. They also have telehealth now where you can connect with providers online to get needed services that you need. So it's a pro and con to social Mm -hmm. media. It depends on how you use it. Yeah. those are good things about social media, but it is an impact. It can have a, a, a negative impact Absolutely. depending on what you're exposing yourself to when you're using those platforms. Okay, this I is love great. talking about my, my, okay. my research and things like this. All right. Thank you very right. much. Be well. Okay. You too. Happy holidays. Yes, you too. Thank you. Every few years, I re-examine my podcasting, activism, purpose, and audience. 
I can confirm that my primary audiences are people who wear some of the hats I wear. You are veterans and emerging experts with lived healthcare experience. You have constituencies of your own. I live to help the helpers. You who serve others are my constituency. To stay current and relevant as local, regional, or national activists, we must continually listen to diverse lived experience. I blogged, podcasted, and vlogged for over 10 years to learn, muse, and share with you. Podcasting and vlogging transform me. The resulting material can change you by providing a more profound understanding of slices of healthcare and life about which we lack the deep knowledge we crave to keep doing our meaningful work. This series about people and programs, Eyeball Deep, Supporting Emerging Adults with Mental Illness, takes a multi-dimensional look to an under-resourced, alienating, frustrating, and inspiring world. In this 12th episode with Dr. Robert Motley, I've learned the term emerging adults. In our work and practices, we hear the umbrella of social determinants of health, now a buzzword losing its meaning without more specificity. When Robert discussed breaking the cycle of violence and mental illness, he highlighted support systems, transportation, belonging, and upward mobility. Now I can get my teeth into those more than social determinants of health. Robert hooked me on the research gaps, partnering with communities and individuals with lived experience in research and his examples of communities in action. I learned quite a bit. How about you? Has this series expanded your more profound knowledge of the world around emerging adults with mental illness? Let me know. I host, write, record, edit, engineer, and produce Health Hats, the podcast, with production assistance from Kayla Nelson, from website and social media consultation and managing dissemination, plus Leon Van Leeuwen for transcript editing. Joey Van Leeuwen supplies musical support, especially for the podcast intro and outro. I play Barry Sachs on some episodes alone or with the Lechuga Fresca Latin Band. I'm grateful to you who have the most critical roles as listeners, readers, and watchers. Please subscribe and contribute on Patreon. Help me keep the lights on and out of my retirement funds. See the show notes, previous podcasts, and other resources through my website, health-hats. Com, and my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash at dvanlu, D-V-A-N-L-E-E-U. Link in the show notes. If you like it, share it. See you around the block.